Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Today, my guest is editor Chris Cloud to talk about the latest federal and state regulatory actions, including a settlement between the New York Department of Financial Services and One Main Financial over cybersecurity risks. First, here's a word from our sponsor. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, talking with Christina Bennett, Senior Vice President of UWM Sales, about a career in the wholesale channel. Christina, becoming a broker can seem daunting. What advice do you have for those looking to join the channel? Honestly, Sarah, becoming an independent mortgage broker is very easy. There's a lot of resources out there to be able to help people, whether looking to join an independent mortgage broker or become an independent mortgage broker. They can go to beamortgagebroker.com. We have step-by-step plans of how to become an independent mortgage broker. Or like I said, even if you're just looking to join an independent mortgage broker, it's very easy, it's very fast and efficient. And like we all know, it's best for consumers. Thanks, Christina. And listeners, you can go to BeAMortgageBroker.com to get more information. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks again for having me, Sarah. Always a pleasure to join you. Always a pleasure to have you on. You know, you covered the federal beat. And to me, that is so interesting. So much happening. As we know, this is a very active federal government, whether we're talking about the Congress or the White House or agencies. So today I wanted to ask you about um, something coming up in the House that would incentivize home selling. Tell us about this More Homes on the Market Act. Yeah. So this was actually a piece of legislation that was introduced in the previous Congress, but it failed to get farther than, um, than just being referred to the House Ways and Means Committee. The original version, I believe it had five co-sponsors, all, all bipartisan, which is, you know, considering the political climate today, call that a win, right? The fact that you can actually get the parties to work together on something, but housing is such a universally important issue that, I think it's indicative that they recognize that there are some problems that need to be addressed. So this latest version, it's actually picked up quite a few sponsors. It's up to nine, both Democrats and Republicans. And basically what uh, what this bill would do, yeah, the More Homes on the Market Act, it was introduced primarily by Jimmy Panetta, who's a Democrat from California, and Mike Kelly, who's a Republican from Pennsylvania, back in March. And it would amend the tax code to incentivize more homeowners to sell their houses and conceivably increase the supply of homes that are available on the market. The last version I uh, was introduced last September, so it was under the previous uh, House leadership. Now that the chamber is under control of Republicans, it's going to be interesting to see whether or not uh, current leadership decides to bring it to the floor. But it seems like uh, Representative Panetta, who is one of the the primary co-sponsors, He's starting to push again to try and get this over the finish line. He gave an interview to Market Watch last week, and he said that this is a simple fix. He says the bill is straightforward. Um, he said, quote, a lot of people who have owned homes for a long time are in that position of deciding, do I sell my home that has gained a tremendous amount of capital and then take a huge tax hit, or do I just sit on it and give it away? So uh, this is really something that's designed to try and uh, and increase the level of supply and bring more sellers 
to the market who were otherwise disincented to try and sell? This is, you know, trying to get um, a solution to a very thorny problem that we're facing, which is just a lack of inventory. And part of that is sellers don't, you know, if if they are are have a pretty low mortgage rate, they have less of an incentive. But especially if you think about, then they're also going to get hit with a big uh, capital gains tax, right? Right, exactly. So uh, the bill as it stands right now in the current language, it would increase the sales gain tax exclusion to $500,000 for single filers from 250k. And uh, for joint filers, it would increase it to $1 million from 500000 And these were amounts that were set back in 1997. They were not indexed for inflation. And for uh, for Representative Panetta's case, he says that it's had an outsized impact on California homeowners who face some of the highest housing costs in the nation. And he's right about that. I mean, you look at, uh, at the average home sales across states, California is consistently either nearly or at the top of the list. So uh, it makes sense that they're going to try and, and, you know, tackle this from a more market oriented perspective. You have state legislatures in in California and and certainly elsewhere who are trying to do what they can on the regulatory side to potentially boost the amount of housing supply. But uh, this is just another tool in the, in the tool belt. So it'll be really Fascinating to see how far it progresses and whether or not it actually comes to the floor for a vote. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Um, I think it's really interesting that legislate, uh, legislators are looking at like, what can we do, right? From to, to your point, it's sort of a um, a market, even though it's coming from Congress. I mean, they're looking at like, how do we incentivize people to do this? Because we are facing just really low inventory all across the board. Um, Logan Motoshami wrote a um story last week that talked about there's only for new home sales, right? So new construction homes, there's only 70,000 available. Now we have more in the pipeline, but right now across a country of 330 million people, you have 70,000 new homes for sale and our existing home market, you know, is also very low on inventory. So it is a problem. I mean, and and it's a problem for our industry because you know, if you're not selling homes, if you're if you're not uh, selling homes as a realtor, you're not making money. If you're not financing mortgages, right? So, so it's a huge problem just to see sort of the whole uh, system locked up right now. Yeah, but at the same time, too, I'm at least a little encouraged just as just as an observing citizen that you're starting to see some additional cooperation on an issue that is of paramount importance for, for for regular people you know i mean the fact that you have such uh it seems at least so few scenarios where you can get people from both parties on the same page housing is something that impacts everybody universally it doesn't matter where you live it doesn't matter really what you believe you need to have a roof over your head in order to have a decent quality of life so the fact that you have lawmakers who are recognizing that there are issues specifically related to supply that they might be able to address and that they're actually taking steps to do something about it. I find encouraging, again, whether or not that's actually going to mean that it comes to the floor is a whole other issue entirely, where there's you know a whole other uh, system that decides what it actually voted on before progressing potentially to the president's desk for a signature. But 
it's still uh, nice to see that they're at least doing something to try and address this within their power. And it just kind of follows up on the housing concerns that we see elsewhere. I've written stories over the past several months in the Senate. Another bipartisan duo introduced a bill that would address a shortage of affordable housing in rural communities by easing the process for nonprofits to acquire properties with USDA rural housing loans. So that's another tool in the tool belt at the federal level, but also at the state level. Uh, we've talked before about Washington State Governor Jay Inslee signing a slew of 10 different bills, taking aim at supply and affordability challenges like lifting single family zoning restrictions or allowing additional construction in ADUs. Uh, the Rhode Island legislature recently approved um, legislation that would ease the ability to construct ADUs there. In Minnesota, that legislature approved bills that would preserve affordable housing projects and provide down payment assistance for first-time homebuyers. There is a concerted legislative push at the at the state and federal levels, definitely, uh, to try and address these challenges that people are facing across the country. It is great to see, um, you know, the fact that this has risen to their level and they're trying to figure it out. Um, switching now to some other state level news, um, uh, I want to talk about the story you wrote about the New York State's Department of Financial Services. The fact that they announced that they had fined one main financial, right, to pay $4.25 million uh, over cybersecurity lapses. $4.25 million. Not a lot of money, right? When you, when you look at what uh, regulators can do, but in this environment, and you know, it's not like one main financial is, you know, chase. I mean, this is a significant amount, but it's also to me uh, a clear um, shot across the bow, right? New York DFS used to be very active regulators and very, uh, very much leading the nation in like state level, um, Actions, which because they're New York and everybody you know is, is registered there, it would really it would really almost be like the de facto. This is what's happening across the nation then, and so to see them take this cybersecurity um, breach, it wasn't even a breach, right? That they're really looking proactively. And, and came up with this. So tell us a little bit about this. Yeah. So, I mean, if anything, this is just indicative of, of the ways in which the world has changed a lot over the past, you know, 20 some odd years, cyber and, and, you know, in the last just couple of years, cybersecurity has taken on so much additional importance because you have a concerted, concentrated and organized effort by bad actors to try and breach cybersecurity systems and gain access to consumer information. In the case of uh, one main financial, it's it's all from lapses. Uh, the 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 DFS said that one main failed to effectively manage third party service provider risk, manage access privileges, and maintain a formal application security development methodology. So, for example, they uh, they didn't manage their user access privileges to information systems that provide access to non public information. They were allowing people, or maybe maybe allowing is too strong a word. They were not uh, disallowing people, maybe, from uh, sharing passwords who have uh, access to these sensitive inf- uh, sensitive systems that contain sensitive user information. Uh, they, uh, yeah, administrative users were sharing accounts, and that made the ability to identify bad actors harder for people. And the investigation that DFS undertook also found that those accounts often used the default password provided at onboarding 
which increase the potential for unauthorized access. I mean, if there's anything that we certainly hear, you know, just in our own organization, as well as, you know, if you get emails from your bank, they always say, look, here's a default password, change it right away. And it needs to, to, to fit a certain set of criteria so that it is more difficult for, uh, for a bad actor to crack. And it just sounds like according to this investigation and DFS's findings, one main just wasn't quite doing that. Their application security lacked a formalized methodology that, uh, addressed phases of certain aspects of the company's software development cycle. So they used a non-formalized project administration framework that it had developed in-house that didn't address key software development lifecycle phases. And that again, in, uh, leads to increased vulnerability to, uh, what they call cybersecurity events. That being said, the consent order did indicate that DFS uh, was at least pleased to see that they were taking uh, what was pointed out in the investigation seriously, and they are working to rectify the shortcomings. But um, you know, it just it it just emphasizes something that uh, was actually part of the programming at HW Annual back in in 2021. I covered. Uh, a, a presentation by Salim Aisi, who's a cybersecurity expert, and uh, he was formerly at ICE Mortgage Technologies. And he just said that ransomware attacks have increased significantly, and they've only increased since 2021. And you also have uh, actors up to and including uh, more traditional organized crime that are getting involved in cybersecurity because it's a it's a quick way for them to make money if they can exploit those vulnerabilities, then they can bring more money in. And um, it, it pays to, to bring authorities into the fold as quickly as possible when that takes place. One of the vulner- vulnerabilities for mortgage lenders or servicers is their third-party um, you know, vendor management policies, the, the third parties that they um, partner with, right? To, to do their um, to to do everything. I mean, it, it could be anything. And this is one of the specific things that the NYDFS uh, called out was that one main did not um, conduct timely due diligence for certain high and medium risk vendors, despite the existence of their third party vendor management policy. Right, that said that each vendor had to undergo an assessment. Um, they also said that they didn't adjust several vendors' risk scores even after those vendors had um, you know occurrences of multiple cybersecurity cyber events. So this to me, if I'm a mortgage lender or service or anybody in the space, this is a huge, um, you know, red flag to say, this is something they're, they're focusing on. This is something that, you know, obviously just for their own protection, every lender or servicer should be focused on, but it's also a huge vulnerability. Third parties, uh, vendors is, you know, third-party vendor management is its own thing. And I, I just think that that was what really stood out to me on this. Yeah. Third-party vendor management is almost like a, an, an industry unto itself. I mean, how many, how many press releases do you get in your inbox that announce some sort of implementation with a third-party vendor on like a loan origination system or some other aspect of, of really critical foundational software to be used in the modern mortgage origination process. I mean, there is uh, an abundance of examples that companies advertise their ability to interface with, uh, with other systems. And if those vulnerabilities are not shored up to, to take modern security concerns into account, you're going to have 
real problems. And I'm sure that this is going to create issues, particularly in the short to midterm for one main until they sort of get their new, uh, their new practices in place. But either way, I mean, this should prove to a lot of other uh, complementary companies within the industry that this is a serious concern and um, regulators are at, at virtually every level are paying very close attention to it. And if, if they catch a whiff of something not being totally up to snuff, then they are going to call you out on it. That is. And, you know, this was a big topic at the um, MBA uh, Technology Solutions Conference, right, back in April, as it would be. Um, And they, you know, there were all sorts of uh, experts saying, you know, we have to strengthen security because, to your point, there are more bad actors out there targeting this. Um, And at that conference, they really talked about phishing, right? So that's um, where attackers, you know, deceive people into revealing sensitive information installing malware malware and one of the ways they saw that was um through usb drives which i thought was interesting um that you know sometimes you don't know where those usb drives have been compromised i would i would never have thought about that i just think that there's so many ways that um that we're vulnerable oh yeah i mean the the not only does the digital infrastructure need to be uh properly secured but the physical infrastructure that gives access to the digital systems absolutely needs to be secured i mean there are people I know certainly who walk around with a, a physical security key that could be in the form of a USB drive, but it could also be something else where they require the systems they use to have that plugged in before it will even allow them to log into it. I mean, that's the, that's the level to which certain people pursue their, their own security matters. So yeah, it's a, it's a very real concern and you know obviously it's not great news for uh for one main or for the industry that an actor like that even if they're not like Chase as you alluded to. Uh no one likes to see this take place. So hopefully the end result is going to be uh more companies paying close attention to their security infrastructure and bringing it up to uh modern standards. Um you do have to think too in this particular environment, what, what, what we've been calling a challenging environment, right? Where, you know, volume is so low. Um, on the one hand, that's, you know, it's a terrible time to have to, to increase cost in anything, but it might be the time to really shore up whatever they can, you know, especially if it's like practices, when you think about this in particular, um, one main financial using the, the, the login, you know, people using the login they got when they were onboarded. It's stuff like that, that this could be the perfect time for companies to take that on. That doesn't cost necessarily anything. It might cost time, but just to make sure things are short up, this, this is not a bad time to do it. No, no, certainly not. And I mean, the, the security infrastructure and the methods that bad actors use to try and gain access to sensitive information they're all only going to become more sophisticated, you know, as, as, as time goes on. So if anything, that is a big emphasis, I think, on the necessity of making uh, not only investments in time, but certainly investments uh, of, in a financial sense to bring the, those security systems uh, up to spec, so to speak. It's, it's critically important in order to not only protect the customers that are served by these companies, but the companies themselves. I mean, you have ransomware attacks that can cripple the operations of a company, sometimes for months on end, depending on the, you know, the level of encryption inherent in some of those ransomware attacks. 
and it can be devastating if uh if if they're if, if those kinds of vulnerabilities are exploited so uh yeah cautionary tale but again you know dfs did say that one main is is taking things seriously so hopefully it'll be sooner rather than later that everything uh comes up to spec You've done a lot of reporting recently on uh, different parts of, you know, what the FHFA is doing. Uh, for instance, there was a, um, a hearing recently about the buy merge credit model, right? The the new credit changes that FHFA announced earlier this year, which I think the industry really was excited about. But the hearing was talking about how this might impact consumers. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so this was uh, something that was proposed back in October of 2022 that the classic FICO credit model that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac use uh, with the 10T and Vantage score, credit score models. It would basically move things from soliciting credit reports from all three predominant credit reporting credit reporting agencies to two, and that would be decided by the lending institution. Uh, Lawmakers who had the chance to speak directly with the FHFA director, Sandra Thompson, in that hearing uh, last week uh, expressed concern that under a buy-merge standard, two consumers who have similar credit profiles might get differently priced mortgages depending on which two reports are pulled. But um, what uh, Director Thompson basically said was that uh, pulling two reports not only saves the consumer themselves money, but it also increases competition between the the three major credit reporting agencies. Uh, She had alluded to a a report that FHFA had undertaken about what the impact of this kind of a policy would be. And I guess they entertained the idea of going only to one credit reporting agency, but they found that the the scores were far too inaccurate to justify that kind of a model. But moving to two made very little difference in in terms of, uh, of the scores that were polled. So uh, FHFA seems very confident in it, um, but there are lawmakers. uh, It was predominantly Republicans that spoke during the hearing, but there was uh, a Democrat, David Scott out of Georgia, who had expressed some concerns as well. But the concerns that all of the lawmakers expressed are certainly valid, and and Director Thompson seemed to take them all uh, very seriously. Um, Basically, Director Thompson added that since there were only three credit reporting agencies and they had special information about certain parts of the country, uh, that kind of a posture was supplanted by modern advancements in technology. Uh, and, and especially now that there's a national lending ecosystem. So she argued that that requires the, um, the credit reporting standards and, and the kinds of reports that are pulled from consumers to change. Uh, lawmakers, I'm not sure if they were totally convinced, but she made her case. And I think the policy is on its way to, uh, to being implemented over the next, uh, several months. Yeah. Interesting. It says that, um, you know, under this, then, um, the lenders get to pick which two they're going to do, which I guess this is what she's saying, that there's going to be more competition. You also just wonder like, how are they, how are they picking that? If, you know, what what it right now it's just like you pull three you take the median from those three i mean it's it's kind of this process but how does the lender decide oh i want i want equifax and i want this and what's the how is that going to happen 
Yeah, she didn't address that specifically. It seemed like lawmakers were concerned that uh, about who was making the choice. Uh, and I think that she communicated the idea that because it's the lender that's making the choice, it's not, it's, it's not in the government's hands, for instance, which of the three credit reporting agencies are going to be chosen. Um, and maybe there are regional variations about which kinds of credit reporting agencies are going to be ultimately used under a buy merge model, but it wasn't, uh, sufficiently explored what the criteria would be in terms of a choice of a specific credit reporting agency for a loan. It sounds like, uh, she's calling on the lenders to come up with their own internal criteria for those kinds of decisions. I'm, I'm reading into that. She didn't explicitly say that during the hearing, but uh, that's what it sounds like. And I think that the idea of the lenders choosing did put a couple of the lawmakers a little bit more at ease, but um, this is still something that uh, that is still being worked out, it seems. Well, we will see how that works. Um, the next story I wanted to talk about was also about the FHFA, but it's about um, the FHFA's watchdog, which is the Office of the Inspector General. It released its semi-annual report to Congress, and one of the things that um, stood out to me, and so it's like the watcher of the watchers, right? Um, was that it said that it thought that the um, FHFA could do more um, on appraisal bias. I thought that was a really interesting thing because from my perspective, they've been pretty active there. Um, but, you know, one of those reports that the OIG did said that, you know, it had the capacity to do more in its effort to combat appraisal bias, including proactively notifying state regulators and licensing authorities when it identifies cases of appraisal bias. So what did you make of that? Well, that was uh, something that arose out of uh, a report that they issued. I believe it was back in uh, in December. It, it, the FHFA had published a report that tried to draw attention to racial bias claims back er, in uh, December of 2021. Um, and apparently 17 referrals in 2022 were made and provided 25.6 million active appraisal records to HUD but no further action was taken. And it sounds like that's what the primary issue was. I think a lot of people do think that appraisal bias has gotten significantly more attention. I mean, HUD developed a a specific task force designed to address those concerns. And I think that's where a lot of that concern seems to be coming from in terms of the FHFA watchdogs part. But um, the commitment of the federal agencies to try and address appraisal bias it sounds like particularly, you know, five or six months ago when that initial report was made that, uh, you know, the the additional commitment to combating appraisal bias, uh, it wasn't quite as well developed as it is now. So they're going to try and take things just a, a, a little bit further in terms of, uh, of, of combating appraisal bias, which it seems uh, most of the, the housing regulators certainly think is a, a serious issue. And they've gotten direction from the White House specifically saying, please address this. This is a concern. And it's something that we need to do to shore up uh, housing in America. But the, uh, the watchdog report, the semi-annual report, also touted something that I thought was kind of interesting, that uh, they made 40 indictments 
uh, or charges, 14 arrests, 43 convictions or pleas, and 27 sentencings that resulted from it. They reported just about $27 million in criminal restitution and uh, about $5.5 million in criminal fines or forfeitures. But they also reported $495 million in civil forfeitures, and that all came from Credit Suisse. Uh, there was a settlement with Credit Suisse in October of 2022 over a dispute tied to uh, mortgage-backed securities. So the vast majority of the, the the reported cash, more than $500 million from restitution, forfeiture, and criminal fines, so much of it came from that one, uh, that one Credit Suisse settlement, which, uh, I mean, it's a big settlement, certainly, but it's, it's just uh, uh, interesting to me that so much of the total accomplishment did come from that one settlement. Yeah, I think that is interesting. Go after you go after the whales for a reason, right? <laughs> yeah, you're telling me. I guess so. That is amazing. Uh, well, Chris, thanks so much for being on. Love having you on, and uh, we will continue to look uh, for more reporting. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sarah. I really appreciate it. I'm McKenna Clay, Events and Programs Specialist here at HW Media, and I wanted to invite you to our upcoming event this summer. A theme we've heard from housing leaders this year is the importance of relationships to not only survive, but be strategic in 2023. And that's why we decided to invite the top C-suite executives and leaders in mortgage to join us at Gathering of Eagles in Austin, Texas from June 18th until 21st. Now, Gathering of Eagles has historically been exclusive to the nation's most elite brokerage, association and team leaders, and C-suite leaders. But for the first time this year, we're opening up the audience to include execs from mortgage, title, and insurance so that you can connect and build vital partnerships for your business. If you want to learn more, visit the events page on realtrends.com and you can get registered today to come hang out with us in Austin. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.